Yo. All right. Babylon's Banksters. Babylon's Banksters. Apple cart al alchemy. You're listening to Babylon's Banksters. Apple cart alchemy. Presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Colin, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Babylon's Banksters by Joseph P. Perel, 2010. This is chapter six in the reading that we're already here, which is titled, Alchemy Upsets the Apple Cart, The Transmutative Medium and the Alchemy of the Stars and Banksters. Chapter six, titled, Alchemy Upsets the Apple Cart, The Transmutative Medium and the Alchemy of the Stars and Banksters. Starts with a quote. Further support for the hypothesis that a transnational interrelationship existed between ancient mystery schools was the discovery of the Gunderstrup Cauldron, a superb example of the silversmith's art. This bowl which was discovered in a Jutland peat bog, is de decorated with pan-cultural deities. That quote is by Brian Despero. So, once again, what possible connection could there be between all these things? Why do we find a J.P. Morgan suppressing Tesla? Why, in turn, do we find a Tesla preoccupied with gripping the earth to make his wireless transmission of power work? Why do we find a startling ancient connection between banking and physics in the form of astrology, astronomy, and even, as Hoagland has hinted, sacred geometry? Why do we find an RCA engineer named Nelson drawing up planetary charts that look for all the world like astrological charts. Yes, why do we find an RCA engineer named Nelson drawing up planetary charts that look for all the world like astrological charts? Why do we encounter a government economist like Edward Dewey devoting a lifetime of work to the study of cycles of all sorts? And why do we find him making conscious and deliberate reference between economic activity and physics? And why do we find, not just in ancient times, but in modern ones as well, the presence of bankers on the peripheries of such investigations? A. Econophysics. One. 
Physics Invade Finance, the modern model as a key to the paleo-ancient past. The answer lies in part in modern times, and in order to begin to peel back the onion skin layers of this vast, intricate, and ancient relationship, one must look at the rise of a new discipline, econophysics, and at what happened in modern times as physicists entered the world of high finance, bringing their techniques and tools of applied mathematics and analysis with them. The term econophysics was actually coined in the mid-1990s by H. Eugene Stanley to reflect two things. First, it was designed to reflect the vast influx of degreed physicists into the financial sector itself, as that sector often provided a higher salary base and opportunities to employ the tools of applied mathematical analysis than was possible in actual standard academic or experimental careers. And secondly, it was reflective of the fascination that physicists had acquired for the application of the techniques of statistical analysis they had developed in quantum mechanics to the problems of economic and financial analysis itself. As such, econophysics is an interdisciplinary research field applying theories and methods originally developed by physicists in order to solve problems in economics, usually those including uncertainty or stochastic processes in nonlinear dynamics. What spurred this interest was in part, according to the article in Wikipedia, the availability of huge amounts of financial data starting in the 1980s. Of course, as has been noted, this is not exactly true. There was a vast amount of data available from the Department of Commerce and from other sources and countries dating much further back. A database utilized by Edward and the Foundation for the Study of Cycles and a database known to its members, some of whom included economists from major international banks. One thing in particular that attracted physicists to this study of the application of their techniques to financial and economic systems was precisely that in economics. More often than not, there prevailed a general condition of non-equilibrium. That is, one was never dealing with systems where there was a uniform distribution of resources, wealth, and so on. As physicists and chemists, had only recently, in the 1960s, begun to study non-equilibrium physical systems and their remarkable ability to self-organize, the motivation for their study of economics becomes clear. Physicists thought that by studying the most notoriously non-equilibrium systems known to mankind, economic systems, their models of the ability to such, of such systems in the physical world could be applied with some success to model self-organization in economic systems and to make valuable predictions on that basis. As will be seen in a few moments, this is an important clue to the possible deeper physics involved in economic systems. To put it succinctly, quantum mechanics had invaded economics and the reason why is relatively easy to perceive. Because since economic activity was 
the result of the interaction among many heterogeneous agents. There is an analogy with statistical mechanics where many particles interact. And the key tool in this new interdisciplinary endeavor was quantum physics, the use of the path integral formulation of statistical mechanics. But what exactly does this mean? The first implication is that one may use the influx of physicists into economic study in modern times as an analogy of what happened in ancient times, and assume that something like this happened as well in ancient times, as those with the high knowledge of a deeper physics penetrated the world of high finance, that is to say, the temple, seeking, better, seeking a better standing, standard of living and personal wealth like their modern descendants. And once inside those hallowed pavilions and chambers, they allied with the bankers of their day, the bullion brokers. It was a necessary detente in the aftermath of that great cosmic war, for if the lost science and technology were to ever be constructed, or if the lost science and technology were ever to be reconstructed, it would require lots of money and lots of scientific expertise, and both resided in ancient times in the temple. The second implication requires a closer look at quantum mechanics itself. Two, quantum mechanics, ancient astrology, and the statistical approach. One may gain an appreciation of the statistical nature of quantum mechanics by considering its foundation principle, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle itself. Briefly stated, the uncertainty principle holds that if one measures the velocity of an electron, one cannot measure its position, and conversely, if one measures its position, it is impossible to measure its velocity. Actually, um, a little bit more clearly, it's not that it, you can't measure the position if you're measuring the velocity, it's that it becomes less accurate measurement. So the more you measure the velocity of an electron, for example, the more accurately you get the measurement of the velocity of an electron, the less accurately you measure its position. And conversely, the more accurately you measure the position, the less accurately you can measure its velocity. And this can even see, be seen in the macro world. I mean, I don't even know why that's something exclusively seeming. They always put it as the Heisenberg uncertainty principle for quantum mechanics. So the same thing if you throw a fucking ball through the air and measure how fast it's going through the air, it's moving. So, of course, you can't measure its, its position um, if you're measuring how fast it's going through the air. And, of course, if you take a snapshot of it in one position in time, right, with a photograph, for example, then you can't measure its velocity as exactly the more precisely you measure its position. And even, for example, with a photograph, that's measuring its position exactly, right? Especially if you, for example, launched a ball from like a, like a ball launcher, like one of those things that they use in uh, baseball um, batting cages, right? And imagine in, in one position for like for, for the, this example, if you're shooting um, a baseball um, from from the, the right side to the left side, right? And the camera is, is positioned that way where it's facing that the, the, the ball launcher is on the right side and um, it's shooting towards the left. And then you have a big panel on the back wall that has measurements laid out, right? And you shoot that ball and it takes a photograph, right? 
in the center. Once you have that position position measured exactly, because you can see where it's marked on the wall behind it, right? Then that's a still photograph and it tells you no information about its velocity because of the fact that it's a still picture. So it's not moving anymore. So you've exactly measured its position. And therefore, because you've exactly measured its position, you get zero measurement of its velocity. Whereas if you had this on a, on, on a moving camera, right, and you were able to measure its velocity by seeing how fast it, uh, it moved by having, for example, a clock at the bottom of the screen as it was moving across, right, and you knew the distance from where it launched from to where it landed, where it hit, you could measure its velocity. And the more certain you got that position, that measurement of its velocity, the less its position. Okay, enough of that. Um, continuing. Thus, quantum mechanics, when considering the behavior of several particles all at once, had to rely upon observation and the compilation of statistical probabilities in order to model that behavior. The same holds true if one takes the ancient texts at face value for astrology as well, for there is an exact modern analogy with quantum mechanics and its countless and untold observations made diligently over time and with its statistical approach to that vast number of interactions, for this is precisely what one encounters in ancient times as well. In fact, as previously noted, the Babylonian omen tablets indicate that astronomical observations of planetary alignments and corresponding earthly activities and effects, a combination we now call astrology, were made over hundreds of thousands of years ago. This is therefore yet another sign that there is some other hidden influence at the work in the temples besides that of the bullion brokers. And that influence is that of the ancient astrologers, not the astrologers, astronomers themselves. So this is therefore yet another sign that there is some other hidden influence at work in the temples besides that of the bullion brokers. And that influence is that of the ancient astrologers, astronomers themselves, compiling their lists of observations. From the previous chapters, it is evident that the ancient international bullion brokers were in league with the various temple priesthoods astrologers. Three. Well, let me get that again here. So, from the previous chapters, it is evident that the ancient international bullion brokers were in league with the various temple priesthoods astrologers. Three. Dr. Lee's Gaussian copula and a physics analog, the multi-body problem. Quantum mechanics, statistical approach, and that implied by the millennia of ancient astronomical and astrological observation, is directly connected to Dr. David Lee's Gaussian copula formula via a rather interesting route, the multi-body problem. The problem is an exact analog to the difficulty of modeling the behavior of mass aggregates of particles. The only way to do so was through careful and countless observations and a statistical model of probabilities of their behavior. But the problem becomes more acute as the size of bodies being modeled grows. You know, I want to put on Colin here, I'm going to give a, a link to the to the book Babylon's Banksters and uh, so that anybody could download it and read it uh, on their own if they wanted to so I'm finding that link here got it it's on archive.org 
copying that and I'm going to go here to comment and put that in the show links here so links so it should show up there soon enough oh, put that there. Whoa. what is that that's not what that is wait a minute okay there we go and that links to the PDF there so hopefully that'll show up I don't know what this Discord invite thing is. Where, where did that come from? Uh, once again, copy the text, and I gotta share this. Now I just gotta get back to read because. All right, that's it. Let's get back to the reading here and get this done. Good. It shows up. Let's click on that link and make sure it works. There it goes. Good. It gives everybody the ability to download that. Um, hey, how you doing, Carnal Nature? What's up? And I'll also put the link in the live chat here and then continue reading. I'm using two devices and one of them I'm using to read this article that I downloaded or this book that I downloaded. So I'm not looking at calling too much guys so if you're in the room there i don't see you that much because i need to use that one and i'm also reading on uh wisdom as well all right so um quantum mechanics statistical approach and that implied by the millennia of ancient astronomical and astrological observation is directly connected to dr david lee's gaussian copula formula by a rather interesting route the multi-body problem. The problem is an exact analog to the difficulty of modeling the behavior of mass aggregates of particles. The only way to do so was through careful and countless observations and a statistical model of probabilities of their behavior. But the problem becomes more acute as the size of bodies being modeled grows. Imagine one is trying to model not the aggregate behavior of several particles, but of several planets and stars. It is relatively easy to model the force of gravitational attraction between two moving masses or planets and to predict their behavior. But as one adds more and more moving masses to the system to be modeled, the ability of mathematics to handle and accurately predict the behavior of a total dynamic system or any of the individual components within it progressively breaks down, and margins of error increase. Dr. Lee, of course, solved his multi-body problem of correlations of economic activity by, predictably enough, a statistical approach, which introduced the problem of random probabilities into economic activity. But what if the randomness of quantum mechanics was itself the result of a deeper physics? And, if that be so, and since econophysics was but the importation into economics of physical models, would that deeper physics also be a deeper physics of economic activity? Four, the deeper physics. A, David Bohm's hidden variable quantum mechanics and the implicate order. The deeper physics implied by this question may be readily perceived by a review of one of its most famous expositors, as well uh, the well-known plasma and quantum physicist David Bohm. Bohm is best known, in fact, for his hidden variable version of quantum mechanical theory, 
in which the randomness of quantum mechanics observed and measured by physicists, Bohm's explicate order, is understood to point to a deeper and more ordered hyperdimensional reality, Bohm's implicate order. Bohm outlined these views in a popularized treatment in a book entitled Wholeness and the Implicate Order, and it is this book that will be the basis of our review of his ideas. For Bohm, the whole development of quantum mechanics pointed to the real existence of this hyperdimensional implicate order. One discovers both from, the, from considerations of the meaning of the mathematical equations and from the results of the actual experiments that the various particles have to be taken literally as projections of a higher dimensional reality which cannot be accounted for in terms of any force of interaction between them. In other words, Bohm is saying almost the exactly same thing as was Richard C. Hoagland at the beginning of this chapter. Particles as rotating masses and whose behavior when measured as a st statistical aggregate are portals that gate a hyperdimensional reality into our world. While Hoagland, however, was concerned with the hyperdimensional implications of the physics of very large masses, i.e. stars, Bohm is concerned with the hyperdimensional implications of the physics of the very small. This is an indicator that the physics involved is scale variant, that is, applicable over the whole range of scales of objects with which physics deals. Bohm's apt analogy of the interaction of this hyperdimensional world with our own is that of a projection. Let us begin, he says, with a rectangular tank full of water with transparent walls. He then reproduces a diagram of a fish tank with two television cameras, one pointed at each side of the tank and the other at the side perpendicular to each. Each camera, A and B respectively, is attached to one television monitor. As the fish swims around, the images from the two cameras are sent to the monitors. Bohm then com comments as follows. What we will see there is a certain relationship between the images appearing on the two screens. For example, on screen A, we may see an image of a fish, and on screen B, we will see another such image. At any given moment, each image will generally look different from the other. Nevertheless, the differences will be related, in the sense that when one image is seen to execute certain movements, the other will be seen to execute corresponding movements. Moreover, content that is mainly on one screen will pass into the other, and vice versa. E.g., when, when a fish initially facing a camera A turns through a right angle, the image that was on A is now to be found on B. Thus, at all times, the image content on the other screen will correlate with and reflect that of the other. In other words, our three-dimensional world acts as a sort of prism to break up a singular hyperdimensional object into a fragmented thing perceived from different angles, but with correlated movements. Both Bohm summarizes this view of our three-dimensional reality as a projection from a high-dimensional reality, and its effect on perceptions of quantum mechanics and its underlying implicate order, with words eerily evocative 
of Hoagland's comments about stars at the beginning of this chapter. We may regard each of the particles constituting a system as a projection of a higher dimensional reality rather than as a separate particle existing together with all the others in a common three-dimensional space. For example, in the experiment of Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, which we have mentioned earlier, each of two atoms that initially combine to form a single molecule are to be regarded as three-dimensional projections of a six-dimensional reality. However, it is when Bohm turns to a consideration of the implications of this view that the full scope of the possibilities of this deeper physics springs into full view, and with them, the reason for the association of banksters with temples in ancient times, not to mention modern times, becomes a little clearer. To make these implications manifest, Bohm begins by noting that when the quantum theory is applied to fields, it is found that the possible states of energy of this field are discrete or quantized. Such a state of the field is, in some respects, a wave-like excitation spreading out over a broad region of space or region of space. Nevertheless, it also has somehow a discrete quantum of energy and momentum proportional to its frequency so that in other respects it is like a particle, e.g. a photon. However, if one considers the electromagnetic field in empty space, for example, one finds from the quantum theory that each such wave-particle mode of excitation of the field has what is called a zero-point energy, being low which it cannot go, even when its energy falls to the minimum that is possible. If one were to add up the energies of all the wave-particle modes of excitation in any region of space, the result would be infinite, because an infinite number of wavelengths is present. Before we can proceed, it is necessary to pause and consider how Bohm has characterized the zero-point energy. For Bohm, as the passage just quoted makes clear, this energy is a result of the quantized nature of space itself and of the fact that this quantization is a result of wave-like structures, of areas of compression and rarefaction within it. Why this is so requires only a moment's reflection. When a physicist suggests that space itself is quantized, what he means is simply that it is not an infinitely divisible continuum, capable of being divided into ever smaller units or cells ad infinitum. The reason is, according to Bohm, that if space itself is the result of wave-like structures of compression and rarefaction, then such wave-like structures will inevitably induce cells within it. What appears to be an infinitely divisible continuum, therefore, is really so only because of the infinite number of wavelengths present at any given point of vacuum space. This conception leads Bohm to posit the next step toward the quantization of space itself. There is good reason to suppose that one need not keep on adding the energies corresponding to shorter and shorter wavelengths. There may be a certain shortest possible wavelength, 
so that the total number of modes of excitation and therefore the energy would be finite. We will refer to this shortest possible wavelength as the Bohm wavelength. Let's see, what is uh, going on here in my text? <laughs> All right. I got to move on for that. All right, this Bohm wavelength, the idea that wave-like phenomena are themselves quantized, has profound and huge implications for the type of deeper physics being explored here. For one thing, this unknown wavelength sounds very much like the lost word of Masonic tradition or the lost chord of the esoteric doctrine of the harmony of the spheres. The lost chord being the frequency which somehow binds all of physical creation together, since the latter is but a harmonic or overtone series of it. Hmm, a harmonic or overtone series of it, eh? All right. I just want to take a quick push to send something over here that I must copy and put into the, the room here once again of the of the room over on Colin. My friend Chase just texted me something and uh, I'm going to send him an invite to this um, because he's going to be my main co-host coming soon here um, when uh, when the stuff goes down in a little bit. Oh, you know what? I noticed that I didn't even put, uh, there's no image for this room. Uh, let me put one on there on camera. Let's see, look at that. Babylon's Bankster. It's a good enough. It looks all washed out and crazy. So that'll work. All right. So, yep, good enough. It's a screenshot of a screen that I'm reading from. And now very quickly... Uh, to send him this link so he knows why uh, I'm not really interacting with him just yet. Let me paste that there and move on. All right, good. So now I'm satisfied that I put that on there. All right, so you um, might also find it easier if I use this link too. What the hell? Why is he not showing up in my... Come on, Chase. This is a recent... Okay, there we go. Alright. Good. Alright, let's get back to it. So, this bone wavelength is what we're talking about, right? This Bohm wavelength, the idea that wave-like phenomena are themselves quantized, has profound and huge implications for the type of deeper physics being explored here. For one thing, 
this unknown wavelength sounds very much like the lost word of Masonic tradition or the lost chord of the esoteric doctrine of the harmony of the spheres. The lost chord being the frequency which somehow binds all of physical creation together, since the latter is but a harmonic overtone series of it. A harmonic or overtone series of it. This conception turns out to have huge implications for the possible unification of the physics of the very large with the physics of the very small. Indeed, if one applies the rules of quantum theory to the currently accepted general theory of relativity, one finds that the gravitational field is also constituted of such wave particle modes, each having a minimum zero-point energy. As a result, the gravitational field, and therefore the definition of what is to be meant by distance, cease to be completely defined. As we keep on adding excitations corresponding to shorter and shorter wavelengths to the gravitational field, we come to a certain length at which the measurement of space and time becomes totally undefinable. Beyond this, the whole notion of space and time as we know it would face out into something that is at present unspecifiable. So it would be reasonable to suppose, at least provisionally, that this is the shortest wavelength that should be considered as contributing to the zero-point energy of space. In short, find that wavelength and one will find the ability to engineer space-time and all that is in it. One would be able to tap into a virtually inexhaustible source of energy and utilize it for whatever purpose one desired. Additionally, Bohm's remarks also suggest that finding this frequency would also be a step on the road to the manipulation of gravity itself. Bohm, moreover, clearly sees this Im implication of engineerability, for he sees the clear implication of this view for the very construction and constitution of matter itself. Indeed, he even goes so far as to give an approximation of the very frequency that con constitutes the Bohm wavelength. When this length is estimated, it turns out to be about 10 to the negative 33 centimeters. This is much shorter than anything thus far probed in physical experiments, which have got down to about 10 to the negative 17 centimeters or so. If one computes the amount of energy that would be in one cubic centimeter of space, with this shortest possible wavelength, it turns out to be very far beyond the total energy of all the matter in the known universe. What is implied by this proposal is that what we call empty space contains an immense background of energy, and that matter as we know it is a small quantized wave-like excitation on top of this background, rather like a tiny ripple on a vast sea. Before pondering the implications of all this further, it is worth citing Bohm on the awesome power implied in such a view. It is being suggested here, then, that what we perceive through the senses as empty space is actually the plenum, which is the ground for existence of everything, including ourselves. 
The things that appear to our senses are derivative forms, and their true meaning can be seen only when we consider the plenum, in which they are generated and sustained, and into which they must ultimately vanish. In our approach, the Big Bang is to be regarded as actually just a little ripple. An interesting image is obtained by considering that in the middle of the actual ocean, i.e. on the surface of the earth, myriads of small waves occasionally come together fortuitously with such phase relationships that they end up in a certain small region of space, suddenly to produce a very high wave which just appears as if from nowhere and out of nothing. Perhaps something like this could happen in the immense ocean of cosmic energy, creating a sudden wave pulse from which our universe would be born. Observe quite carefully what Bohm has just stated, for it is crucial to all that follows. Matter itself, in all its variegated forms, is the result of an interferometry of the mixing of several waves of various wavelengths, all of them in turn harmonics or overtones of the Bohm wavelength. It is the very technology of the creation ex nihilo, of the ability of the physics medium or the physical medium to create information and systems by wave mixing. It is the technology of creation from nothing, alchemy. And there is one final consequence of Bohm's views, and that is that in order to give relative system stability to such waves, or rather to the systems that such waves generate, the easiest way to do so is via rotation. A consequence inevitably follows from this view, and that is that rotating material systems, whether stars or particles, are thus natural resonators of such waves, and hence to understand the pattern of interference of such waves, one had therefore to monitor the geometrical positions of significant objects in local space-time. In short, Bohm, with his view that matter is a portal and a glimpse into this higher dimensional reality and its energies, has provided a rationale for two things, the ancient preoccupation with astrology and the ancient preoccupation with alchemy, for both are manifestations of one and the same physics. Matter, to put it succinctly, is but a standing wave of interferometry of other waves. Matter itself is a grid or template of interference of such waves. This forms the link to alchemy, for as such, matter emerges as information within the field of the physical medium. To put it succinctly, matter is mutable, or in the language of alchemy, transmutable, since the physical medium itself, the philosopher's stone par excellence, transmutes itself into the diversity of the material creation. This idea of matter as a template of the interferometry of such waves will play a key role when we turn to examine the placement of sacred temples along certain a certain earth grid in the next chapter, and an even more crucial role as a connecting concept tying together all the disparate data points in this book upon its conclusion. B. The foundation for the study of cycles notices a similar thing.
Oddly enough, the foundation for the study of cycles noticed a very similar thing. We have already encountered the fact that the foundation's founder, Edward Dewey, compared the many cycles in its database to waveforms and noticed the fact that various waves of cycles could be averaged together like sound waves. Ray Tomes, a member of the foundation, wrote an interesting paper presented at the foundation's February 1990 conference. The paper's title is pregnant with implications towards a unified theory of cycles. In it, Tomes pursues Dewey's and Dakin's sound wave analogy to a breathtaking conclusion. Eventually, I realized that the pattern of frequencies present in corn prices was the same as the arrangement of frequencies of the white notes on a piano. This was peculiar, and going back to my early econ common economic cycle study, I realized that the ratios 4, 5, 6, 8 were exactly those of a major chord in music. Why are economic series playing major chords and scales in very slow motion? Research showed that such patterns had been observed and reported before by several co contributors to Cycles magazine. One of these was D.S. Castle, 1956, who found that stock market cycles fit the musical scale. The pattern found ranged over three octaves, and all seven white notes plus one black note were present in at least one octave. Tone's suggestion, in other words, is simply one and the same as that of David Bohm, namely, that one might find the ultimate wavelength or frequency of all types of cycles of which all others are but harmonics or derivations from them. So Tome's suggestion, in other words, is simply one and the same as that of David Bohm, namely, that one might find the ultimate wavelength or frequency of all types of cycles of which all others are but harmonics or derivations from it. C. The well-tempered clavier, the first physical unification. The suggestion is not as far removed from physical reality as it might at first seem. For the modern Western musical scale with its 12 equidistant notes are in fact the example of the first unification in physics. In order to see how, one may perform a simple exercise. If one sits at an acoustic piano and silently presses the note C and then hits the same note C an octave lower, one will hear the strings of the silently pressed note vibrating sympathetically with the struck note. The reason is simplicity itself. Each string on the piano vibrates not only with the entire length of the string, but simultaneously also vibrates in various fractions of that length. Thus, each note has an overtone or harmonic series of notes. Therefore, one can, thus, can then press silently the next note in C's harmonic series, the note G, and hit the same C as before. Once again, one will hear the silently pressed note G vibrating sympathetically with the struck C. The next note on the harmonic series above G is again the note C, then the note E, and so on. If one is sitting at the piano keyboard performing this simple experiment, 
one will notice that the intervals of each harmonic overtone of the original C are growing shorter. First, the octave, the first silently pressed C, then a fifth, the note G, then again another C above that, which is a fourth, then the note E, which is a third, and so on. But eventually one will arrive in the naturally occurring harmonic series at a note that lies somewhere in the crack between the notes A and B flat on the piano keyboard. But why does the piano, or any other keyboard instrument for that matter, not have that note? The answer is simple. If that note were present, then it would be impossible to play a piece that continually changed keys. One would only be able to play a very limited series of chords. To change keys from, say, C to D, one would literally have to stop and retune the whole keyboard. So what has happened? What happened was that between the stylistic change in music between the Renaissance and the Baroque, musicians learned to tweak the harmonic series, to tamper with it, or as they like to say, to temper it by a slight mathematical adjustment of the natural overtone series that would in turn create 12 equidistant notes, each one a harmonic of all others. And thus, music could change through as many keys as it wished in the course of a piece, without having to stop and retune the whole instrument. In this way, each harmonic series of each note on the keyboard, which originally and naturally did not overlap completely, were engineered to do so, and thus were unified. In short, and bearing this analogy in mind, what, David, what physicist David Bohm is actually suggesting as a way forward into the deeper physics of engineering the medium itself is that there is a frequency of which all others, from sound to electromagnetic waves, even to gravitational waves, are harmonics. He is proposing, in effect, a very ancient idea, that of the music of the spheres, a well-tempered clavier of the universe itself. He is proposing a modern physics analog to the lost word and lost chord of esoteric lore. D. Nikolai Kozarev's Causal Mechanics and Precursor Engineering if David Bohm clearly implied a direct engineerability of the physical medium along the lines of a well-tempered harmonic unification of physics, then Russian astrophysicist Dr. Nikolai Kozirev went one step further by implying the ability to engineer not effects, but causes directly. Such an ability implies that Kozirev had a rather more unconventional view of time than does standard physics. For Kozirev, time was not a mere duration, a passive stage on which physical events were enacted. Rather, time itself was an actor on that stage that, like space, had a multidimensional character and quality. An analogy will be useful to illustrate this point. Ordinary physics tends to think in terms to think in time in terms of the future, the present, and the past, i.e. as simple duration. But human natural languages view time in a much subtler, deeper, and qualitative sense, with a variety of verb tenses and voices, future perfect, pluriperfect, past perfect, active and passive voices, and so on.
In a sense, natural languages therefore view time and the correlations between systems in a much deeper and more sophisticated manner than does physics. It was this subtlety that Kozirev intended to explore and to render into the formally explicit language of mathematics. This complexity and subtlety of interrelationships Kozirev located in the rotation moment of a given system, that is, the subtleties of time and the interactions of systems could be modeled as a series of interlocking and interfering systems of rotation or dynamic torsion. Time itself could impart its own intensity, Kozirev's word for compression, implying its opposite rarefaction to a system as well as impart a spin orientation to the system. Through a series of extremely subtle experiments with gyroscopes, balances, and in some cases even telescopes, Kozirev was able to determine that prior to the inception of any physical action, a kind of pre-action would be recorded by his measuring equipment, almost as if the equipment was anticipating the physical action itself. Cause and effect were therefore themselves the result of a lower dimensional fracture or breaking of a higher dimensional unity and symmetry, much like Bohm's projection analogy. By noting the temporal conditions under which these pre-actions or precursors occurred, one could eventually engineer the precursors to any physical action. Thus, bearing in mind Kozirev's precursor engineering, and to return to Bohm's analysis of matter itself as a set of waves in the medium that are interfered upon one another, producing what Dewey and Dakin would call an averaged wave, then one may imagine a horrific possibility, namely the exact mirror image of such a wave which, interfered upon the original, would sum to zero, or exactly cancel it out, making the something a nothing again. The ultimate in precursor engineering was the power to erase an effect of a physical action altogether by eradicating its cause. Furthermore, Bohm's and Kozirev's deeper physics behind the apparently stochastic processes of quantum mechanics implies a similar deeper physics behind the apparently stochastic processes of econophysics as well. Indeed, if one can pace Kozirev, engineer the precursor of effects, if one can actually engineer causes, then this implies that one could indeed engineer the precursors of economic activity, since the means to do so, direct engineering of the physical medium itself, is implied in both cases. Consequently, one now has a speculative basis upon which to advance the reasons for the close association of the banking class throughout history with the temple, that is to say, with that element or class within human society that has at least some grasp on this deeper physics, banking is in effect an alchemical operation of creating information out of nothing, in this case, the information of credit and debt for the latter is but a dim and pale technological reflection in the realm of finance of the analogous, but deeper operations in physics. And it is similarly likely that this relationship was formed precisely so that by utilizing the latter, the former technology and deeper physics might ultimately be recovered. In short, 
were such a physics to be recovered, an alliance with as many temple priesthoods was altogether necessary, for each most, most likely preserved some fragment of it. Again, in short, were such a physics to be recovered, an alliance with as many temple priesthoods was altogether necessary, for each most likely preserved some fragment of it, which when appropriately assembled would be once more accessible. It provides also a rationale for their obsessive interest since ancient times in world unification and domination. For on the one hand, it is likely that vast financial resources, resources transcending the wealth of any one civilization in ancient or modern times, would be needed to reconstruct such a deeper physics. And on the other hand, a world extent is needed in order to maintain the suppression of any independent development or recovery of such a technology by potential rivals. B. Economics, Astrology, and Astrophysics. There are two streams of data that now converge to exhibit a probable deeper physics to economic activity. On the one hand, the vast database of wave-like forms from the foundation for the study of cycles, and on the other hand, the implications of David Bohm's implicate order, where matter itself is the result, and hence a natural resonator of such waves. As noted in chapter two, one of the implications of the foundation for the study of cycles database was that economic cycles, as noted in chapter two, one of the implications of the foundation for the study of cycles database was that economic cycles, precisely because they seem to have some sort of underlying physics basis, recall Dewey and Dakin's sound wave analogy once again, were to that extent, and in a certain sense, beyond the total rule of a man's conscious will. But there is another kind of database that Dewey and Dakin did not consult, but it too suggests a profoundly deep physics to economic activity. And that database is astrology. Astrologers have, of course, been casting mundane horoscopes for various nations for decades, if not centuries and millennia. And more recently, many have noticed the odd correlations of certain recurrent planetary alignments and periods of economic boom or bust. One to do so is Robert Gover in a recent and fascinating book called Time and Money, The Economy and the Planets. He begins by noting the fact that Saturn orbits the sun every 28 to 30 years, Uranus 84 years, Neptune 165 years, and Pluto 248 years. He then notes the importance of these outer planets for astrological economic observations, since the other planets, Jupiter, Mars, the Earth, Venus, and Mercury, all move too rapidly around the sun. They cannot be used to mark years or decades of major economic cycles. He then states his main thesis, one more or less well-known to astrologers, but not well-known outside such circles. Every time the USA has gone through a Great Depression, the outermost, slowest-moving planets 
have formed what astrologers call a grand cross with the USA's natal sun and Saturn. Every time Uranus has returned to early Gemini, where it was when the USA was born, July 4th, 1776, America has experienced its worst wars. Every time Uranus and Pluto have moved into conjunctions, or 90 degree squares, and simultaneously come a conjunct opposite of square sensitive points in the U.S. birth chart, America has experienced social changes or upheavals. Other wars occur when the U.S. natal Uranus is afflicted by trans transiting planets, as happened when the World Trade Center and Pentagon were attacked. Saturn and Pluto form 180-degree oppositions three times a century, the latest being in effect on September 11, 2001. The previous Saturn-Pluto opposition coincided with the tempestuous period we now call the 60s, the one before that with what we now call the Great Depression. Gover then explains what four of the most significant conjunctions or, or alignments are. We shall focus on only two of them. A grand cross aspect is created when four planets form simultaneous squares and oppositions to each other. This is a rare aspect which brings obstructions, tensions, frustrations, i.e. a grand cross to the U.S. Sun-Saturn square has formed each time the USA has fallen into a Great Depression. A grand trine aspect is also rare and is formed by a triangle of three planets 120 degrees from each other, creating harmonious flows of energy, good fortune, and opportunities. It is odd that the Grand Cross Conjunction bears a strange resemblance to the planetary positions charts of RCA engineer Nelson. Grand Crosses form such a common feature to U.S. depressions that Gover actually formulates it as a kind of astrological law no Grand Cross, no Great Depression. However, Gover or Gover notes that in this respect, astrological prediction is not to be misconstrued. If we view the planets around us in our solar system as a huge celestial clock, the first thing history teaches us is that the celestial clock is not mechanically precise like our earthly clocks. Although we can discern from history when like economic events are due, clock-like prediction isn't possible. Certain planetary patterns create seasons when certain types of events can be expected, but the planets cannot tell us specifically how events will unfold, nor how we will respond. We know when winter is nigh, but not how cold it will get. Some hurricane seasons bring great devastation, others are less severe. With this said, a glance at Gover's charts is in order. The first American Great Depression occurred in the 1780s. His chart looks like this. And so, of course, I'm looking at a chart. Those of you on uh, call-in, I provided the links to the book um, so you can look at the chart for yourself. Um, if you go to the corresponding page in the book and um, its other places that I've sent, um, which... If you want on a call, I think I've also added to some of the Spreaker 
uh, podcast as well. But I'm looking at a chart. It, it, it actually looks like um, it's, an, it's an astrological chart. That's all I have to say. Robert Gover's astrological chart for the Great Depression of the 1780s. And it reads, if one takes the time to decipher the planetary symbols, then one finds Saturn was at a 15 degree Capricorn, which puts its opposite the U.S. natal sun at 13 Cancer. Meanwhile, Mars at 21 Aries is within orb or an opposition to the USA's natal Saturn at 15 degrees of Libra. In short, a grand cross was formed between the planetary positions during the 1780s Great Depression and that of their positions at the time of USA's birth. Similarly, a grand cross is formed during the Great Depression of the 1870s. And there's more charts, and it says, it reads in the caption for it, Robert Gover's astrological chart for the American Great Depression of the 1870s, and they do look startlingly similar. Although, what would I know? All right, during this, same, during this time, Saturn in Capricorn formed a square with Neptune in Aries to create the Grand Cross with the USA's Sun and Saturn. Finally, during the Great Depression of the 1930s, yet another Grand Cross was formed. And there's a chart for that, uh, captioned Robert Grover's astrological chart for the American Great Depression of the 1930s. This chart shows a grand cross between Saturn at 13 degrees Capricorn, square with Uranus at 11 degrees Aries, and opposite, i.e. at 180 degrees with the USA's natal Sun and Saturn. That these grand crosses have a malign influence would seem, at least as a prima facie case, to be given. But is there any real-world physics correlation? The answer to this question is as easy as reproducing one of Nelson's charts from his RCA study of planetary alignments and radio signal propagation. Nelson's chart of Venus-Jupiter opposition. Note the similarity is once again that planets, in this case the inner planets, are in certain relationships to each other. Relations of 90 degrees or some harmonic thereof, i.e. 180 or 270 degrees. Thus, if the foundation for the study of cycles database and Gover's and other astrologers' chart are any indicator, then we can now draw even closer to an understanding of the relationship that was seen to exist between banking and the temple in ancient times, for the astrological data of economic boom and bust would have been known by them from ancient times, and it would have been crucial for the financial powers in the know to have such a data available in order to exacerbate or damp the overall trend of boom or bust within a cycle. With this in mind, a glance at the evidence gathered by Ellen Hodgson Brown, whose book was mentioned in the prologue, is in order for a comparison of the activities of banksters relative to Gover's astrological charts is quite revealing. C. Ellen Hodgson Brown. 1. The Depression of the 1780s and the Banksters Brown points out something that most modern Americans do not know, and that is that prior to the American Revolution, most of the colonies printed their own paper money, debt-free, and actually made loans to farmers and businessmen. 
The result was a booming economy and almost full employment. When Benjamin Franklin went to England prior to the revolution, he was asked about the source of this prosperity by the directors of the Bank of England, and Franklin responded that the colonies issued paper money in proper proportion to the demands of trade and industry. But what was backing of this money? The colonies, however, had little silver and gold with which to back their issues of paper currency. With what then was it backed? The then famous Protestant minister in New England, Cotton Mather, made clear what the backing of this colonial script was by asking a pointed series of questions. Is a bond or bill of exchange for 1,000 pounds other than paper? And yet, is it is not as valuable as so much silver or gold, supposing the security of payment is sufficient? Now, what is the security of your paper money less than the credit of the whole country? Once again, is a bond or bill of exchange for 1,000 pounds other than paper? And yet, it is not as valuable as so much silver or gold, supposing the security of payment is sufficient. Now, what is the security of your paper money less than the credit of the whole country? As Brown notes, Mather had redefined money. <coughs> as Brown notes, Mather has rather, as Brown notes, Mather had redefined money. What it represented was not a sum of gold or silver, it was credit, the credit of the whole country. With the context of the evidence presented thus far, and in particular the analysis of David Assel reviewed in chapter 5, what Mather had really done is return to the very ancient conception of money, prior to the rise of the international bankster class of bullion brokers in ancient times. What he had done was re to return to the idea of money as a credit bill against the surplus of the state warehouse and not an interest-bearing note of private issuance. Franklin stated this conception somewhat differently. The riches of a country are to be valued by the quality or the, excuse me, let's go back again here. Franklin stated this conception somewhat differently. The riches of a country are to be valued by the quantity of labor its inhabitants are able to purchase and not by the quantity of gold and silver they possess. The difference is striking for when gold was the medium of exchange, Money determined production rather than production determining the money supply. When gold, when gold was plentiful, things got produced. When it was scarce, men were out of work and people knew want. The virtue of government-issued paper script was that it could grow along with productivity, allowing potential to become real wealth. Franklin elaborated on the source of colonial prosperity to his English hosts, and his words are worth taking to heart. For in them, one discerns the clear difference between a closed system of debt as money or monetized debt and an open system of money as a medium of exchange of production and credit.
fascinating. All right, let me catch back up. This is this is really really good. I mean, this is this guy for whatever he is is exciting in that he's like putting together. It's almost like science fiction, but but reciting history and making up, uh, putting finance and alchemy together with physics. This is this is great. All right. So when gold was the medium of exchange. Money determined production rather than production determining the money supply. When gold was plentiful, plentiful things got produced. When it was scarce, men were out of work and people knew want. The virtue of government-issued paper script was that it could grow along with productivity, allowing potential to become real wealth. That's the problem with the Federal Reserve, folks. It's issued by a private institution. Franklin elaborated on the source of colonial prosperity to his English hosts, and his words are worth taking to heart, for in them one discerns the clear difference between a closed system of debt as money, Federal Reserve, or monetized debt, Federal Reserve, and an open system of money, state-issued money, of exchange of production and credit. In the colonies, we issue our own money. It is called colonial script. We issue it to pay the government's approved expenses and charities. We make sure it is issued in proper proportions to make the goods pass easily from the producers to the consumers. In this manner, creating for ourselves our own paper money, we control its purchasing power, and we have no interest to pay anyone. You hear that? We have no interest to pay anyone, the Federal Reserve, right? You see, continuing, you see, a legitimate government can both spend and lend money into circulation, while banks can only lend significant amounts of their promissory banknotes, for they can neither give away nor spend but a tiny fraction of the money people need. Thus, when your banks here in England place money in circulation, there is always a debt principle to be returned and usury or usury to be paid. The result is that you have always too little credit in circulation to give the workers full employment. You do not have too many workers. You have too little money in circulation. And that which circulates all bears the endless burden of unpayable debt and usury. Franklin has seen the essential criminality and fraud that is central banking. For the governments pursuing a policy of monetizing the debt only means that they are beholden to a private monopoly, monopoly which issues debt as money, whereas the colonial experience and the very ancient experience was that true money was credit on the productive surplus of the state, and hence only the state could issue it. Needless to say, England's banksters were not about to allow this situation continue, to continue, allowing the colonists to gain prosperity without enriching their own parasitic coffers. Thus, the Bank of England parlayed its influence in Parliament to get the 1764 Currency Act passed, which made it illegal for the colonies to issue their own money. 
And predictably, as Franklin observed, a year later, the streets of the colonies were filled with the unemployed and beggars. And it was this substitution of debt as money, the replacement of real money by the facsimile of money that, according to Franklin, was the real cause of the revolution. When the Revolutionary War finally came, the Continental Congress financed the entire endeavor by once again resorting to the expedient of issuing its own paper script as a circulating debt note of the state to be redeemed by a coinage at a future date. Of course, the Continental Congress issued too much of the script, some $200 million worth. So by that by the conclusion of the Revolutionary War, the script was basically worthless. But the real lesson was not in the dangers of a state hyperinflating its state-issued credit notes. The real lesson was that the Continental Congress script still evoked the wonder and admiration of foreign observers because it allowed the colonists to do something that had never been done before. They succeeded in financing a war against a major power with virtually no hard currency of their own without taxing the people. Franklin wrote, during the war, the whole is a mystery even, the po even to the politicians. How we could pay with paper that had no previously fixed fund appropriated specifically to redeem it. This currency, as we manage it, is a wonderful machine. Thomas Paine called it a cornerstone of the revolution. Every stone in the bridge that has carried us over seems to have claim upon our esteem. But this was a cornerstone, and its usefulness cannot be forgotten. Alas, it is a lesson the American people and the two political parties that supposedly represent them seems all but forgotten in modern times. Of course, the British were fully aware of how their rebellious colonies were funding their revolution and purposed to crash the currency by the time-tested tactic of counterfeiting. One British general, cited by Brown in her book, noted that every art of counterfeiting had been tried, but to his chagrin, still the currency has not failed. It was only after the successful revolution that the continental script failed, as the very same founding fathers grew understandably disillusioned with the resulting devaluation, that inflation of the supply, not to mention the counterfeit script in circulation, caused. The result of this deliberate speculation against the American continental script was predictable, for the founding fathers rebelled against the very paper money as credit against the state's future productive surplus after the war by stating that Congress had the power to make and coin money. In other words, the Continental Congress had fallen into the old trap of the issuance of the facsimile of money, of money as debt, even if that debt were the credit against a future surplus of the state. So notice this difference here is that it's of a future surplus of the state, something that is not actually already in the warehouses, so to speak, right? Nothing that it's actually backing. Their issuance, their problem was a fashion meal once again because it didn't have anything real behind it. Not real as in silver or gold, but real as in like the grain stores and other things that people could actually use or even supplies that they use to build and do things with, the stock.
Continuing, the notes represented debt, and the debt had now come due. The bearers expected to get their gold, and the gold was not to be had. There was insufficient supply of money for conducting trade. Tightening the money supply by limiting it to coins had quickly precipitated another depression. In 1786, a farmer's rebellion broke out in Massachusetts, led by Daniel Shays. Farmers brandishing pitchforks complained of going heavily into debt when paper money was plentiful. When it was no longer available and debts had to be repaid in the much scarcer hard coin of the British bankers, some farmer, some farmers lost their farms. The, the immediate result of this first American Great Depression then was, of course, the call for a stronger central government and a means for it to create an expandable money supply and the convocation of the assembly that eventually led to the draft of the current American Constitution. At this juncture, it is worth citing Ellen Brown's comments extensively. The solution of Treasury Secretary Hamilton was to monetize the national debt by turning it into a source of money for the country. He proposed that a national bank be authorized to print up banknotes and swap them for the government's bonds. The government would pay regular interest on the debt, using import duties and money from the sale of public land. Opponents said that acknowledging the government's debt at face value would unfairly reward the speculators who had bought up the country's IOUs for a pittance from the soldiers, farmers, and small businessmen who actually earned them. But Hamilton argued that the speculators had earned this windfall for their faith in the country. He thought the government needed to enlist the support of the speculators or they would do to the country's money what they had done to the continental. Jefferson, Hamilton's chief political opponent, feared that giving private wealthy citizens an ownership interest in the bank would link their interest too closely within it. The government would be turned into an oligarchy, a government of the rich at war with the working class, a bank owned by private stockholders whose driving, driving motive was profit, would be less likely to be responsive to the needs of the public than one that was owned by the public and subject to public oversight. Stockholders of a private bank would make their financial decisions behind closed doors without public knowledge or control. But Hamilton's plan had other strategic advantages, and it won the day. Besides, besides neatly disposing of a crippling federal debt and winning over the men of wealth, it secured the loyalty of the individual states by making their debts too exchangeable for stock in the new bank. The move was controversial, but by stabilizing or stabilizing the state's shaky finances, Hamilton got the states on board, thwarting the plans of the pro-British faction that hoped to split them up and establish a northern confederacy. It is worth pausing at this juncture to observe, in the context of Gover's astrological chart the, of the Great Depression of the 1780s, what we have. One, 
The Continental Congress script was essentially not the same thing as the colonial script in that it was debt money issued against a future promise to pay, some of which was a promise to pay in bullion, which the colonies did not have in abundance. Hence, the Continental script inevitably opened itself to speculation and counterfeiting by the very European and British banksters who held a virtual monopoly on bullion supplies. Two, the inevitable result, as the value of the Continental plunged after the revolution and the money supply contracted to reflect the scarce bullion supply, was that the post-revolutionary states could not repay their debt and an inevitable depression occurred as the supply of money contracted and private debt holders were not able to service that debt. Three, the result of this consequence of events led to the calling of the Constitutional Convention, the, the formulation of the current American constitutional system, and the first chartered private central bank of the United States which issued the FASA meal of money based on monetized debt. Four, the alternative fear which Hamilton voiced was that private speculators would manipulate any new American currency via speculating or via speculation and counterfeiting, driving it to similar worthlessness and splitting the new American nation if they themselves were not given some stake in the new currency as a vested class interest. In short, almost from the beginning of the current constitutional system of America, an uneasy compromise, a detente, was struck with the banksters to allow the new nation to survive and enrich that class in the process. And during all this period, as Gover noted, the planets were in certain alignments. Two, the depression of the 1870s and the banksters. The American depression of the 1870s again followed yet another war in American history, the war between the states. And like the American Revolution, at least one of the leaders of the belligerent parties, as is now well known, chose to finance his side of the war by issuing state-created debt-free money i.e. money as credit on the productive output of the nation. His name, of course, was Abraham Lincoln. And the fiscal lessons of his presidency and its immediate aftermath are once again worth rehearsing in some detail. German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck wrote a curious thing in 1876 about the fiscal policies of the Lincoln administration. I know of absolute certainty that the division of the United States into federations of equal force was decided long before the Civil War by the high financial powers of Europe. These bankers were afraid that the United States, if they remained in one block and as one nation, would, at, would attain economic and financial independence, which would upset their financial dom domination over Europe and the world. Of course, in the inner circle of finance, the voice of the Rothschilds prevailed. They saw an opportunity for prodigious booty if they could substitute two feeble democracies burdened with debt to the financiers in place of a vigorous republic sufficient unto herself. 
Therefore, they sent their emissaries into the field to exploit the question of slavery and to drive a wedge between the two parts of the Union. The rupture between the North and the South became inevitable. The masters of European finance employed all their force to bring it about and to turn it to their advantage. There was just one problem. President Lincoln refused to, to go into debt to the private class of bankers to fund the Northern effort in the Civil War. Chancellor Bismarck's comment is worth citing. The government and the nation escaped the plots of the foreign financiers. They understood at once that the United States would escape their grip. The death of Lincoln was resolved upon. Bismarck, in other words, in his customary direct way, was simply stating that the inner circle of European financiers led by the Rothschilds had had Lincoln murdered as a punishment and message to those who dare presume to challenge their power. While Lincoln was busily issuing his greenback debt-free script, however, the bankers were busily hatching a scheme of their own in Congress through their own faction. Once again, it is essential to cite Ellen Brown extensively in order to appreciate what the scam was and how it was affected. While one faction in Congress was busy getting the greenbacks issued to fund the war, another faction was preparing a national banking act that would deliver a monopoly over the power to create the nation's money supply to the Civil War to the Wall Street bankers and their European affiliates. The national banking act was promoted as establishing safeguards for the new national banking system. But while it was an important first step toward a truly national bank, it was only a compromise with the bankers and buried in the fine print. It gave them exactly what they wanted, a private communication from a Rothschild investment house in London to an associate banking firm in New York dated June 25, 1863, confided. The few who understand the system will either be so interested in its profits or so dependent upon its favors that there will be no opposition from that class, while, on the other hand, the great body of people, mentally incapable of comprehending, will bear its burdens without complaint. <laughs> the great body of people, mentally incapable of comprehending, will bear its burdens without complaint. The act looked good on its face. It established a comptroller of the currency, whose authority was required before a national banking association could start business. Business could start business. It laid down regulations covering minimum capitalization, reserve requirements, bad debts, and reporting. The comptroller could at any time appoint investigators to look into the affairs of any national bank. Every bank director had to be an American citizen, and three-quarters of the directors had to be residents of the state in which the bank did business. Interest rates were limited by state usury laws, and if no laws were in effect, then to 7%. Banks could not hold real estate for more than five years, except for bank buildings. National banks were not allowed to circulate notes they printed themselves. Instead, they had to deposit U.S. bonds with the Treasury in a sum equal to at least one-third of their capital. They got government-printed notes in return. So what was the problem? Although the new national banknotes were technically issued by the comptroller of the currency, this was just a formality. Like the printing of Federal Reserve notes by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing today, the currency bore the name of the bank posting the bonds, and it was issued at the bank's request. In effect, the National Banking Act authorized the bankers to issue and lend their own paper money. The banks deposited the bonds with the Treasury, 
but they still owned the bonds, and they immediately got their money bank in the form of their own banknotes. Topping it off, the National Banking Act effectively removed the competition to these banknotes, imposed a very heavy tax on the notes of state chartered banks, essentially abolishing them. It also curtailed competition from the greenbacks, which were limited to specific issues while the banker's notes could be issued at will. Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase and others complained that the bankers were buying up the greenbacks with their own banknotes. In other words, what the National Banking Act really did was allow the banksters effectively to outproduce the government greenbacks in issues of their own debt-bearing banknotes, which the banksters then used to buy greenbacks and take them out of circulation. The banksters followed this up in 1873 with the, with the so-called act that became known popularly as the Crime of 73 Act, an act which effectively forbade the coinage of silver as legal tender, effectively placing America on the gold standard once again. Predictably, the act led to a vastly shrunken money supply, unemployment, and the depression of the 1870s. The result was similar to the bankster-engineered depression of the 1780s, for it led to a pivotal or a political revolt of powerful farmers who formed the appropriately named Greenback Party, calling for the issuance of state-created debt-free money directly, which money was to be used putting people back to work, improving the infrastructure of the country. While the Greenbacks never succeeded in placing a national candidate of their own into the White House, their message was heard, and in 1881, James Garfield became President of the United States of America. Garfield proclaimed, Whosoever controls the volume of money in any country is the absolute master of all industry and commerce, and when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled, one way or another, by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. As Brown notes, Garfield was murdered not long after releasing this statement, when he was less than four months into his presidency. We shall have occasion to return to a consideration of President Garfield's remarks in a moment, but for now, be it noted, that he has clearly insinuated that the cycles of boom and bust are artificially created by the banksters, whereas the cycles data assembled by Edward Dewey and the astrological data assembled by Gover clearly indicate that such things appear to have a much deeper cause, or such things appear to have much deeper causes than just human actions, and are, to a certain extent, inevitable. So, what is really going on? A hint is perhaps gained by the fact that, one, in the cases of both depressions examined thus far, both occurred after a major war, and two, both occurred after the government in each case decided to fund the war by issuance of debt-free money, bypassing the banksters completely, and three, the banksters retaliated against that currency by unleashing various forms of speculation and manipulation against it through counterfeiting, or by otherwise removing the government's currency from circulation, and four, in each instance thus far, this resulted in the deliberate tightening of the money supply and a corresponding loss of jobs, production, and an economic depression. These patterns reached the nadir of their expression in the Great Depression 
of them all, the greatest depression of them all, the Great Depression of the 1930s. 3. The Great Depression of the 1930s and the Banksters. By the time of the Great Depression, the great struggle between the federal government of the United States of America and the private banksters had finally been won by the latter, with the creation of the privately owned Federal Reserve Bank in 1913. Hmm. Let me take a look at something really quickly. What else was done in 1913? Where's my copy of the Constitution? Was it the Was it the Tax Act? Is that what it is? Right. The thing that they were revolting against during the Tea Party. Gosh darn it. Let's take a look here. I just want to make sure. I think that's, that's it. All right, let's take a look. I have it marked. Yep. Okay. That's what yep, 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 yep. Uh huh. That's what it is. Um, it's Amendment 16. The 16th Amendment was ratified February 3rd, 1913. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. So, Robert Kiyosaki in his books also cited this, that the Federal Reserve was uh, created the same year that the, uh, the Tax Act went to play when they started taxing people's incomes. All right, Kiyosaki on point once again with his research. This one wonder. All right, so we've got, uh, let's continue here. All right, once again, all right, I'm back. Okay, so once again, yep, so, uh huh. By the time of the Great Depression, the great struggle between the federal government of the United States of America and the private banksters had finally been won by the latter with the creation of the privately owned Federal Reserve Bank in 1913 and its thinly disguised police force agency, the Internal Revenue Service, the agency responsible for gathering the newly created federal income tax that was designed specifically to pay the regular interest payments to the banksters' loaning money at interest to the government. Then began the deliberately and quietly orchestrated run-up to the Great Depression. The problem began in the Roaring Twenties, when the Fed made money plentiful by keeping interest rates low. Money seemed to be plentiful, but what was actually flowing freely was credit or debt. Production was up more than wages were up, so more goods were available than the money to pay for them. But people could borrow. By the end of the 1920s, major consumer purchases such as cars and radios, which were then large pieces of furniture that sat on the floor, were bought mainly on credit. What do you have to say that? Were bought mainly on credit. Money was so easy to get that people were borrowing just to invest, taking out short-term, low-interest loans that were readily available from the banks. The stock market held little interest for most people until the robber barons started promoting it, after amassing large stock holdings very cheaply themselves. They sold the public on the idea that it was possible to get rich quick by buying stock on margin or on credit. The investor could put a down payment on the stock and pay off the balance after its price went up reaping a hefty profit. This investment strategy turned the stock market into a speculative pyramid scheme in which most of the money invested did not actually exist. The public went wild over the scheme in a speculative fever. Many people literally bet the farm. Homesteads that had been owned free and clear were mortgaged to the bankers. 
who fanned the fever by offering favorable credit terms and interest rates. The Federal Reserve made these favorable terms possible by substantially lowering the discount rate. The interest rate member banks paid to borrow from the Fed. The interest rate member banks paid to borrow from the Fed. The Fed thus made it easier for the banks to acquire additional reserves, against which they could expand the money supply by many multiples with loans. But why, asks Ellen Brown, would the Federal Reserve want to swamp the U.S. economy with an inflated supply of borrowed dollars of Federal Reserve notes? The answer is chilling. The evidence, says Brown, points to a scheme between Benjamin Strong, the governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and Montague Norman, the head of the Bank of England, to deliver control of the financial systems of the world to a small group of private central bankers. Private central bankers. The reason, according to Dr. Carol Quigley of the Georgetown School of International Relations and himself an insider with access to the banksters' plans, was that during the 1920s, the privately owned central banks were determined to use the financial power of Britain and the United States to force all the major countries of the world to go on the gold standard and to operate it through the central banks free from all political control. In other words, the scheme, by forcing money to be a reflection of the world's gold supply, was one of the drastically curtailing the amount of money in circulation as debt thus setting off the depression. The plan was indeed ingenious. For its cold calculation and cunning, Norman, as the head of the Bank of England, was determined to keep the British pound convertible to gold at pre-World War I levels, although the pound had lost substantial value as against gold during World War I. The result was a major drain of, major drain of British gold reserves. To keep gold from flowing out of England into the United States, the Federal Reserve, led by Strong, supported the Bank of England by keeping U.S. interest rates low, inflating the U.S. dollar. The higher interest rates in London made it a more attractive place for investors to put their gold, drawing it from the United States to England. But the lower rates in the United States caused an inflation bubble, which soon got out of hand. The meetings between Norman Strong were very secretive, but the evidence suggests that a February 1929, in February 1929, they concluded that a collapse in the market was inevitable and that the best course was to let it correct naturally, naturally that is, with a little help from the Fed. They sent advisory warnings to lists of preferred customers, telling them to get out of the market. Then the Fed began selling government securities in the open market, reducing the money supply by reducing the reserves available for backing them. The bank loan rate was also increased, causing rates on brokers' loans to jump up to 20%. The result was a huge liquidity squeeze, a lack of available money. Short-term loans suddenly became available only at much higher interest rates, making buying stock on margin much less attractive. As fewer people bought, stock prices fell, removing the incentive for new buyers to purchase stocks bought earlier by buyers on margin. Many investors were forced to sell at a loss by margin calls, calls by brokers for investors to bring the cash in their margin accounts up to a certain level after the value of their stocks had fallen. The panic was on as investors rushed to dump their stocks for whatever they could get for them. The stock market crashed overnight. People withdrew their savings from the banks and foreigners withdrew their gold, 
further depleting the reserves on which the money stock was built. It was dramatic evidence of the dangers of delegating the power to control the money supply to a single autocratic head of an autonomous agency. Once again, one has, if one compares this evidence with Gover, that as the planets entered certain alignments, certain policies were pursued by the banksters. First, to artificially inflate the money supply, extending easy credit and debt, and then suddenly contracting it, allowing stock prices to fall and allowing the banksters to snap up real assets for a substantially lower price. Of course, as all of this was going on, Herbert Hoover was president, and as we have already seen, he quietly commissioned Commerce Department economist Edward Dewey to study the reasons for all these depressions. Four, implications. So now let us return to the statements of President James Garfield, Garfield cited previously and to the questions they arise or they raised. Recall that they clearly insinuated that he clearly insinuated the cycles of boom and bust are artificially created by banksters, okay? So recall that he clearly insinuated that the cycles of boom and bust are artificially created by the banksters, whereas the cycles data assembled by Edward Dewey and the astrolog astrological data assembled by Gover clearly indicate that such things appear to have a much deeper or have much deeper causes than just human actions and are, to a certain extent, inevitable. So... What is really going on? In each case thus far examined, as these planetary alignments were occurring, or more importantly, as a glance at Dewey's cyclic data would indicate, each downturn, and particularly that of the Great Depression of the 1930s, came at a moment when the data suggested that this was more or less inevitable, regardless of what actions might have been taken by various governments or banksters. So let us now make two assumptions based on the assembled data. Assumptions, indeed. One, the cyclic data of Dewey suggested that a downturn was inevitable precisely during the time of the 1930s depression, and the cosmological data assembled by Gover suggested a similar inevitability for other depressions in American history, and two, the presence, since ancient times, of the close association between the temple with its astrological associations and the banking class continued unabated into modern times, a point readily suggested by the presence of economists of major banks in Dewey's own foundation. Gover's astrological data, moreover, would be available to any astrologer capable of casting a mundane horoscope, and hence, readily available to anyone so inclined to assemble such charts for comparison with the historical evidences of booms and busts in various economies. Thus, one is led to an astonished and rather breathtaking conclusion. It would appear that anyone in possession of such knowledge as Dewey's cycles or astrological data similar to Gover's would be in a position, through careful policy manipulation, and the contraction of a money supply based on the facsimile of money as circulating debt to dramatically ex exacerbate and capitalize on the overall upward or downward trend of such a cycle. Moreover, this appears to be exactly what happened in the cases of the three great depressions in American history.
The exact mechanism for these deeper physics influences on human behavior is not here in view, however. It may be the case that in certain alignments, that certain alignments cause certain types of behavior to emerge in the aggregate, which in turn create conditions apt to favor one policy or course of action or another. Or conversely, it may be that certain types of influences block the aggregate ability of humans to perceive the subtle manipulations of these would-be master manipulators, which other types of influences, of influences may magnify human perceptual abilities and discretion. We simply do not know how this works, but we do know, what we do know is that this astrological component and its connection to the banking classes is as old as the civilization with which astrology is associated. Babylon itself. It is an association as old as that of the ancient priesthoods and temples, not only with the stars, but with the bullion brokers. It is interesting to note, then, that some allege that the Rothschild family secretly traces its family dynasty back to the Sumerian tyrant, Nimrod. D. Implications of Engineerability, the Ancient Alchemical Connection. All this implies an engineerability to economic trends, even if one does not possess the technology or means to engineer the physical medium or thus its cycles themselves. For if one possessed such a sufficient database to know and advance the inevitable cycles of boom and bust, one may not be able to reverse these cycles, but one could considerably exacerbate or alleviate their overall effect. The keystone in the arch linking together all these disparate concepts Econophysics, astrology, astronomy, Bohm's and Kozarev's precursor engineering of causation itself, the bullion brokers, the ancient temples, is alchemy, which in its esoteric aspect is the ability to confect the philosopher's stone, a substance that can turn base metals into gold, and in its esoteric aspect is the ability to draw upon the transmutative information creating properties of the physical medium itself for the power to create or destroy in its exoteric aspect therefore it would be of immediate concern to the bullion brokers to command such a technology to prevent any outside force or faction from utilizing such a technology to collapse the artificially created value of their bullion and hence ruining their private money creating power similarly it would be of immediate interest to those wishing to break that bullion broker's monopoly to command that technology. By the same token, the bullion brokers, by controlling the exoteric aspects of alchemy, would see in it a means to the vastly expanded powers of its esoteric aspect, the ability to manipulate and engineer the physical medium itself, thus including even the cycles of aggregate human behavior and activity. Once that power was restored to them, their iron grip on power would be complete. So notice the stages which have been observed through the previous chapters. One, in the first stage, the bullion brokers resort to a kind of false alchemy, i.e. the private creation of debt and interest debt by the fiction of ledger credit entry. This is the financier's alchemical charlatanism for something, quite, something has quite literally been created out of nothing. But that something only continues to be something of value so long as wider society accredits it as such. It is not genuine information, for it is, in fact, in its interest debt creation, the creation of negative information. 
a black hole of financial entropy that inevitably must suck all creative production into it and let nothing escape. It is a financial cancer that inevitably will consume its host, creating its own death. Lose that confidence and the value is gone. Thus, the way to sanctify and ensure that negative value was to associate their money minting and issuing activities with the sanctity and probity of the various temple priesthoods in each civilization. Two, in the second stage, alchemy is pursued for its own sake, not only to increase the and or expand the supply of bullion, but to also monopolize that technology, lest the too rapid increase of that supply ruin the value of the privately created money which they themselves have implemented. In short, they must monopolize this technology, lest their money monopoly be challenged by king's intent upon restoring their crown prerogative of money issuance based on the creative production of their state and subjects. And in order to monopolize it, they must quite literally infiltrate every society and civilization which appears likely to develop it. It is, perforce, and by the nature of the case, an international conspiracy, for it must have an international reach in order to ensure that the economic system remains closed. Three, in the third stage, which is always the ultimate goal, the bullion brokers seek to develop the highest alchemical technology of them all, the ability to engineer the physical medium and its cycles directly. Since alchemy in its exoteric aspect is based upon its esoteric aspect, i.e. Upon, upon the idea of the physical medium as an information-creating and transmutative medium, this top technology, too, must likewise be monopolized. Since any rival gaining access to it could successfully challenge their monopoly of money issuance and, more importantly, would have the power to overturn them by force if necessary. From Morgan's suppression of Tesla to Tesla's own possible independent use of his wireless impulse transmitter technology in a weaponized fashion at Tunguska to Nazi Germany's restoration of a state-created debt-free money and to its investigation of this deeper torsion-based physics with its Bell Project to ancient Sparta's and Rome's attempt to restore economic autarky and Rome's burning of Egyptian alchemical books, the pattern is the same. Wherever there is a private monopoly on the creation of money, there too one finds the inevitable and covert alliance with the Temple of Science and a mutual interest in the secret development of the deep alchemical physics of the medium. For that, far beyond the shadowy limitations of international banksters creating ledger debt entries, is the ultimate power to create or destroy. That alliance with the temple gave the ancient bullion brokers yet another clue on the road to recovering the lost and unified physics. The placement of such temples on the surface of earth itself and the repetitive occurrence within those structures of a sacred geometry known to its priests and initiates. Coming up next will be a different part known as the sacred sites and scalar temples will end here with part three and the ending of that uh, sec of chapter six three the monsters in the machine quote in their drive to advance the global empire corporations banks and governments collectively the corporatocracy use their financial and political muscle to ensure that our schools business 
and media support both the fallacious concept and its corollary. They have brought us to a point where our global culture is a monstrous machine that requires exponentially increasing amounts of fuel and maintenance, so much so that in the end, it will have consumed everything in sight and will be left with no choice but to devour itself. John Perkins, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Coming up next is, is Chapter 7, Sacred Sites and Scalar Temples, the Earth Grid and the Transmutative Medium. But for now, you've been listening to Babylon's Bank Serves. Apple Cart Alchemy, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Call-In Social Podcasting, and Wisdom Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Unequilibrium.